Okay, this morning let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, and today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. And what we do in our church is go through the Bible Because the Bible's a, a, a big book and there's a lot of things to know. And we don't we don't want to be those people where Jesus says to them in the New Testament, in the Gospels, have you not read? You're supposed to know this stuff and have you not read it? It's in the Bible. God's people ought to be reading the Word of God and read it until you get it. And they ought to be listening to it, too. So this morning we're going to look at that. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you this morning that we're able to have the word of God in our hand. We thank you, Lord, that the Spirit of God gives us illumination as we study it. He brings it to our mind and our attention. He makes it clear. I pray, Lord, that you would do that today as we start this book and go through it, that it would really change us. It would give us the mind of Christ. It would set us up to understand not only what the gospel is, but what the Christian life is. And I pray, Lord, as we understand that, it would just bolster our faith to continue on putting one foot in front of the other, breathing in, breathing in and out, and doing the next thing for you. And Lord, as we live our regular, normal, everyday lives, that you would be glorified through it, and that we would manifest the things that you are changing in us, the characteristics of, uh, characteristics of Christ that you're forming in us would become evident to ourselves and to others. And I pray, Lord, as you grow us, that we would desire more and more and more. And we would never be satisfied. We'd always want more of you. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the word of God that helps us to understand what you have done and what you're going to do and what you want us to do. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's look at chapter 1 and read verse one through seven today, but I'll look at verse one through four. Verse one, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his Divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, 
perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Let's, well, I already prayed, so. I just want to go up to verse number one, and I want you to notice some things about this. This is, this is really Peter introducing himself to us, and he said, he says here, Simon Peter, but actually in the original Greek, it's the word Simeon. This is the Hebrew spelling of Simon, rarely used in the New Testament, only used here and in Acts chapter 15. Actually, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at other passages. But Acts chapter 15, there in verse number 14, you're going to find that what it says there is it actually uses the word Simeon, the Hebrew rendering of his name. And it says in Acts 15, verse 14, it says, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, this verse falls in the context of the Jerusalem council. There was a sect of Pharisees who had believed and then thought that the Gentiles were, were, who were being saved should be circumcised and observe the law of Moses. So then Peter stands up, and this is what he says, and look at Acts chapter 15, verse number 8. It says, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Verse 11, important verse. It says, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So the apostle is laying out there, listen, uh, these Gentiles are being saved just like we, the Jews, are being saved. There's, there's no difference. God's not making a distinction anymore. That This was a little bit unnerving for the Jews, but it was the true God was moving in this way. And then the apostle Peter went on to say in Acts 15, verse 19 and 20, it says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. So Peter just lays down here, if we're going to put any regulations on the Gentiles, it's going to be just these things, nothing else. Because we weren't able to bear all the stuff that was placed upon us. The Gentiles surely aren't going to be able to bear it, but they really didn't mean uh, to them as it once meant to the Jews. So Peter was therefore... All of what Christ has done, all of what Christ taught, Peter was there for all of it. He saw everything that the Lord did. And he became the leader, the leading apostle, and actually became the, the most famous man in the world besides Jesus. The apostle Peter is one that was there from the beginning. No apostle could actually claim that, that he was the leader of Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the apostles. So if we, if we go back to 2 Peter, we're going to find that the writer of this epistle also mentions two characteristics about himself 
that explains who he is and what his relationship is to Jesus Christ. Back to verse number 1, he says in verse 1 that he is a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. The term, of course, for bondservant is actually the Greek word that means slave. He was a slave, and a slave is one who serves in obedience to another's will. One commentator said it like this, a person totally devoted by, owned by, and devoted to Jesus Christ, whose status is not their own, but derived from the master. Now, of course, this comes right out of the book of Exodus, where we know from Exodus that there was a law of slaves. And a law of slaves was that they can, it, can, it really can be used as a good example of the desire of someone who willingly gives themselves as a slave to another. And the law went like this. In Exodus 21, just listen what it says. It says, now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh year he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is a husband of a wife, then he, his wife, shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to the master and he shall go out alone. But then it says this, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out as a free man. At that point, then the master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him permanently. See, that is the picture of a bond slave, someone who is willing to give themselves to the service of another, and not only to the service of of another, but to the instruction of another to do that person's will. So slavery under Christ is completely opposite than that of slavery under sin. Sin And Satan remain cruel masters. They always have been. They always will be. But Christ is a good master to all who put their faith and trust in him for salvation. So Peter, in other words, loved the Lord. The Lord was his master, and Peter willingly became a bond slave, in a sense, having his ear pierced and saying, this mark of my ear, in my ear shows that I am a willing slave of the Lord. That should be all for all Christians, right? That we should be willing slaves of Christ. Whatever you want me, whatever you want from me, Lord. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want, whatever it is, I am willing. Whatever it takes, I am willing. And that's what we all ought to be. And, and Peter is presenting himself as that kind of person. But a second thing in our passage is that he presents himself as first as a slave and then an apostle. Usually it's the opposite, but he makes sure that he presents himself as a slave first, but then he is an 
an apostle, and an apostle is an ambassador. An apostle was a special individual whose qualifications were very specific and very limited. What were the criteria of a person becoming an apostle? Now, this is important because of what's going on today, because people are saying today there still are apostles. No, an apostle had to be a person who had seen the risen Lord. Also, apostle had to be called and commissioned and sent by the risen Lord to preach the gospel. And of course, once they were called by the Lord, then the Lord gave those apostles abilities that no one else had, the working of miracles, the casting out of demons, the raising of the dead, all those equaled works of power. And of course, all those those were given to the apostles to authenticate the apostles' message. And of course, uh, it was also given to lay down a foundation for building the church with the message of truth. Like it says in Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And of course, thirdly, an apostle was given the authority of Christ. See, the Greek term for an apostle uh, was the word apostolos, which in the first century was used of those who had the right to speak for the or on behalf of the authority of another, of an authority figure. And so we see that this term apostle means that they were a delegate for someone else. They were an envoy for someone else. And of course, we can also use the word ambassador. They were an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. Like it says in Matthew 10, verse 1 and 2, Jesus summoned the 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. You know, that means that today there are no more apostles. If you go back to right to the end of the book of the Bible in Revelation, it says that the foundation stones are the names of the 12 apostles. Right? So that means that who's ever claiming to be an apostle today have not read the scriptures. They have not read what the Bible says about it. But Peter is saying, listen, now am I a bond slave, but I am an ambassador for someone else, and that someone else is Jesus Christ. So once Peter tells us about himself, he starts laying down the divine basis for godly living. That's what he does. And so if you look in the end of verse number 1, you'll see there it says, those who have received a faith. So the foundation, the foundational provisions for spiritual growth for God's people is found really in what God has done on our behalf. And what has he done? Well, he has, first of all, there are three things mentioned about salvific faith. And the first thing mentioned about salvific faith is it is a faith that brings salvation and is obtained as a gift, those who have received a faith. So faith here is the trust which brings a person salvation, and it is 
the God-given capacity to trust God. Actually, the, the original word for receive is a word that means to choose by lot. It is what comes to someone always apart from that person's effort, meaning that the gift that God gives in salvation is a gift. There is nothing you can pay for it. There's nothing you can do to get it. But there's one thing you do get. You get to receive it. So see, here it comes by divine will, and that it is received by divine will. In other words, to receive a gift of God's grace. And of course, we know that, but that is definitely in the mind of Peter when he's bringing this message. And then, of course, the second thing about the salvific faith in verse number one, it is, notice what it says in verse one, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours, that this faith is a as precious as the apostles' faith. Now, you, you say to yourself, well, well, why does he say it like that? Well, Peter felt the recipients of the letter had received the faith equal to that of the apostles, a faith that is just as precious and carries with it equal privileges just like the apostles received. Now, you know what that means. It means this. There's only one faith. There's not many faiths. There's only one way to God. Just think of it. The gospel that was preached over 2,000 years ago is as adequate today as it was then. Now, did you notice the stress that Peter put on the central person of the gospel? It's Jesus Christ. In just two verses, he uses his name in different forms three times, just letting us know that there is no gospel apart from Jesus Christ. That has to be made clear, but there are many today that think it is important for people to have religion, to believe in God. But that's very subjective because it leaves open the possibility of one's own interpretation of God. Because if a person says they believe in God, that does not make them a Christian. It does not make them right with God. Many people talk about God all the time. But the problem is, there is no talk of Jesus Christ. Talk about God all you want. Bring up Jesus, you got a problem, Right? Depends on who you're talking with. Jesus Christ is a problem when you're talking about God. But remember, Jesus is God. So even when they do talk about Jesus, their understanding of him seems to be at a distance of what the Bible actually says about Jesus Christ and what he has done. So the only way anyone can be right with God or righteous in the sight of God, is to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is, by the righteousness that he has given to us in Christ freely in the gospel. Now, you say to yourself, well, how did that happen? Well, look at verse number one. It says there in verse number one, by the righteousness 
of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus had come on the earth for one reason, and he came for one reason only, that he might bear the sins of man himself. In Christ, God dealt with the sin of mankind. Jesus punished sin there. He'd done away with it. And man can be right with God by believing that particular message and then submitting to it. It is when one comes to understand after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them that they have a real dilemma because of their unbelief, because of their idolatry, because of their, their sin nature, along with their multitude sins of word, deed, and thought, they themselves, under God's righteous judgment of wrath, when they see that, they see that they cannot rescue themselves. There's nothing they can give God. There's nothing they can do to appease God and to turn away his wrath. So that's when Christ becomes important. That's really when the gospel takes root, when we, we see Christ. We see him in his work. We see him as the most precious offer of our lives. That they become like a man who's very ill, and he has lost his health and goes to the doctor and says, Doc, if, if you know of any remedy at all, anything, I beg you, let me know about it. I don't care what it costs me. I must have it. So his health becomes the most precious thing at that point in his life. And at conversion, a sinner begins to realize how precious Christ is. So a sinner then calls out and says, I have no righteousness of my own. I receive the righteousness that God freely gives me in Christ. I am an unworthy sinner, but I can be clothed in his righteousness. So the apostle Peter is saying about this faith, is the doctrine about Christ, our righteousness, precious to us? It is, is it the greatest gift that we can receive on this side of eternity that Christ paid attention, chose us by lot to hear the gospel? We received it and we were made right by him based on what he has done and not what we could ever offer or could ever do? That it is a free gift that he gives us, should that not be the most precious thing? It should be, because we as unworthy sinners have been clothed in his righteousness. That is what enables one to have the confidence to stand guiltless in his presence someday and even presently. Why? Because it's not my own righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness that saves anyone. It's like what... The Apostle Paul said in Philippians, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through Christ in faith, through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So along with Christ's righteousness given to a believer, there is also an ethical righteousness that comes with that. It's not just a mere profession of faith 
where I understand now that Christ is the one who saves me. It's Christ's righteousness on my account, not my own. But along with that, as God leaves us here on this earth, he gives us an ethical righteousness. That means the believer's nature is transformed so that he or she will manifest the character of God. Now, this is extremely important for believers because believers have to know that they're responsible to live their Christian life in a certain way. And so there's a third thing said about faith here in verse number two, and it's a faith that must be grown into and guarded. Now, in verse number two, a very rare verbal mood is expressed in the Greek. It is the mood of subjective reality, like saying, I wish, which expresses desire, often tra translated with the term may, as some translations have it, such as the ESV. In this passage, it says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. It's like saying this, may the grace and peace of God be yours in greater measure. And that's where Peter is heading. He's heading to us growing in the Lord. And he's saying, this is how you're going to grow. And you need to understand this. And remember, Peter is, is looking at the end of his life here. He's already told, been told by the Lord he's going to be dying a martyr. So this is what he wants to tell people. This is what he wants Christians to know. And the only one who, who could ever have this grace and this peace are believers. They are given it in greater measure as they what? As it says there, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. As a person moves further in the direction of that which it seeks to know. And that is he or she comes to know Jesus better and better. The growing personal knowledge only comes by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. See, Christianity is really coming to know a person in an ever-deepening personal relationship. That knowing Jesus Christ as a person, when the Apostle Paul penned 2 Timothy, said in really... Chapter 5, verse number 12, this is what he says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. See, Paul didn't say, I know what I believe. He says, I know whom. I believed. See, can we say that today? Can you say that today that you know whom you believed? And it's not just knowing things about God and Jesus. It's not just a quick acquaintance like having met someone for the first time, but a knowledge heading to committed living for the sake of the Lord, like a bondservant, like a slave. And make no mistakes, Peter is not saying that you can reach God or know about God by sheer 
power of human thought or some mystical experience. That's more like New Age teaching. An infinite God can never be grasped by the finite mind of man. If God is ever to be known in greater measure, he must be known not because man's mind discovers him, but because God chooses to reveal himself to mankind. See, that's the only way we can ever know God, is if God chooses to show us who he is. And if he doesn't choose to show us who he is, we will not know him. It was uh, commentator Douglas Moo who says, in our day, we are rightly warned by the danger of a sterile faith, of a head knowledge that never touches the heart. But we need to equally be careful, he said, of a heart knowledge that never touches the head. See, the biblical writers, and Peter definitely is in this group of biblical writers, demands a knowledge of God that unites head and heart together. See, once someone is born again, then what is the believer to strive for? What is the most important objective of the Christian life? Well, it's twofold, really. First, objective of the Christian life, a Christian is to know God. You say, well, I I did know, I believe in him, I know him. No, you don't know him. Because God's God, and there's a lot of things to know about God. So you know what? When you believe, you just start beginning baby steps about knowing about who God is. But God also gives us a desire for that. There is a second thing, objective of the Christian life. Not only are we to know God, but secondly, we are to become like him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I think to myself, that seems impossible. That's an impossible objective. How could I know God the way I ought to and then not only know him, but become like him? Now, since you have become a believer, ask yourself, how much have you grown in your knowledge of God? Is God real to us? Do we know God when we pray? Are we aware of a sense of contact and communion and fellowship with God on a regular day-by-day basis? Yes, they're, they're impossible. But we must thank the Lord that he has included everything necessary to strive for these objectives with success. You know when you buy something, you know when you buy those shells that you want to put other things on and you buy it in a box about this big and about this high and it's got like, you know, 15,000 parts to it 
and you bring it home and you say, man, do I really want to put this thing together? You know, and then, of course, we all start out putting it together, looking at the pictures that I can do it without the instructions. And then we start putting it together, and then halfway through it, oh, no, I forgot that bolt or that whatever part. And you say, oh, man, this, this, is, this is, I can't take this. I don't like this. And, uh, but, you know, we have to thank the Lord about something today, that God gives us all the parts and the instructions on how to do it. And he gives us the power to do it. Isn't that amazing? And that's what Peter is communicating to us because he's, he not only laid down for us some of the, uh, the foundational provisions, but now he gives us the privileges for spiritual growth of God's people. In verse number three, he starts that. Now, this next verse is really saying to the believer that we are not lacking anything to proceed forward, to grow in a more detailed and fuller knowledge of God. The privileges come to believers in the form of a gift. And the first first privilege highlighted, and of course, these are the things that are done for us by God. The first thing that is highlighted is found in verse number 3. And it actually gives us several privileges. And the first one is this, that God gives us the power to be like Christ. Notice what it says in verse 3. It says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So God's power has been given to us. Everything we need is provided. And the term power is that term that means an ability produced that produces a strong effect, that what God gives to us actually is effect. It produces results, and it's going to produce a certain result, and we're going to get to part of that next week. But just think for a moment. God has provided us at conversion the Holy Spirit's ministry. We're indwelt with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God illuminates the Word of God to us, we have the intercessory ministry of Christ praying for us as our high priest in heaven every day. He prays to keep us. We have the protection of angels. We have the true faithful pastors who expound the word of God. And we have the teaching of the word of God, the full, inspired, inerrant, inscripturated word of God in its final form in our hands. God's not giving any more revelation in spite of what people say today. We have the final revelation. We just got to find out what it is. Instead of getting, giving us more, I say, you're going to give us more? We don't even know what you gave us before. No, we, there's enough in the word of God for us to never exhaust, right? It's there for us. It's, it's there right on the page for us. In fact, uh, the word he, where he says, seeing that the, his divine power has, has granted to us. This word granted is actually a perfect tense of a verb that means it emphasizes the continuing nature of that which is given. That this particular divine power never runs out. It is always available to us. Every Spiritual resource is provided by God in order to live a godly life, a godlike life. Of course, the question is, are you living it, and do you have proof? 
a life that God will approve of. See, God has provided through the indwelling Holy Spirit the resources that we need to live a holy, godly, and blessed life. One person put it like this, Jesus has provided everything that's needed for the Christian to flesh out his life in everyday living so as to reflect his image. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who has divine power to live the Christian life. See, Christians are ones who develop, really develops the divine character and then manifest that divine characteristic in everyday life. So in other words, if we fail to live a fruitful, productive life, it's not because of any lack of resources. All the parts are there. The instruction is there. The power is there. So it's got to be our failure. It's got to be our misunderstanding of the use of what God's given us. So that means for believers, there is no excuse at all whatsoever. Believers are not lacking anything to proceed forward, to grow in more detail, fuller detail in the personal, personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. The next privilege comes to a believer in the form of knowledge. In other words, God says, okay, this is what I've done for you. Now here's the process of how this transformation actually takes place. And look what he says in verse number three. Well, before I look at that, this is the process of becoming like Christ. That the Apostle Peter is, is informing Christians that this is what they are called for, to manifest the divine characteristics of God that are being formed in them by the Spirit of God, that God's glory as reflected off of man will show forth God's communicable attributes that are being formed in them, such as goodness, kindness, truthfulness. But look down at verse number 5. It also says this, there's moral excellence that's to be added to your faith. There's knowledge that's to be added to your faith. There's self-control, there's perseverance, there's godliness, there's brotherly kindness, and there's love. All of those are added to your faith as you grow in Christ. So that means that if those things were not part of your life, if your life used to be part of bitterness and anger and cursing and malice and an unforgiving spirit and hatred, all those things, that's all the flesh. That's none of the spirit. God's going to transform you out of those things. That's what he's going to do. See, that's what a real believer is. A real, real believer never stays the same. They're always moving and growing and maturing. That's what they're doing. In fact, that's what Paul said to the people at Galatia. He says, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. That's why I'm here, until Christ is formed in you. That is that the Holy Spirit of God's goal for you and I is that we would manifest the characters of Christ and that Christ would be formed in us. Now, how is that happening? Well, if you notice, 
in verse number 3, it says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So how does it happen? It happens by growing in the true knowledge of Christ, who called us to this. He called us to manifest his glory as it's reflected off us. He's called us to manifest his goodness. And so this term, true knowledge, really means full knowledge, one who comes to know and appropriate uh, and appropriate it uh, through faith in Christ, a true knowledge that is really leads to moral knowledge, an intensive knowledge of knowing Christ. And the Bible says when that, those, that knowledge is grown, if you, when you grow in it, it says that in verse number 8, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So true knowledge produces results. True, true knowledge of Christ produces results. Now, now let me explain. There is such a thing as true knowledge of him. Opposite to this true knowledge is false knowledge. There's a lot of false knowledge. There's a tremendous amount of false knowledge. You know, I say to people, when you come to know God as your Lord and Savior, you didn't know anything right about God. You've got to just cast it all out, get, to, get your Bible, start reading it, and find out who God really is. And then you're going to replace that false knowledge that you're really uh, coming to the faith with, with true knowledge. Now, the reason why he mentions it like this, the apostle, is because there is a false knowledge, and the false teachers are spewing out of their own, their own particular doctrine that does not produce the same results as true knowledge of Christ. Their teachings do not lead to godliness, in other words. They lead to something, but it surely is not godliness. Their teaching appeals to the lower nature of man's corruption. And, of course, that results from lust and an unconscionable, immoral desire for things that displease God. So remember, if you look over to 2 Peter 2.2, 2, Right across the page, or the next page, it says this. Remember, false teachers, what they do is they slander the truth. It says, many will follow their sensuality because of them. The way of truth will be maligned. So, in other words, the hearers of false teaching are not getting the true gospel, which does not produce true conversion, nor a lifestyle that is truly in the direction of godliness. So the Apostle Paul also taught healthy and sound doctrine that led to godliness. And he, as he wrote in 1 Timothy, take your Bible, turn over to 1 Timothy, and I want you to notice these passages because he brings out to us some, something, that somebody can teach a different doctrine and if they teach that different doctrine, and it's not the true knowledge, the doctrine that comes from the true knowledge of Jesus Christ, it will not lead to godliness. 
it will not lead to living a God-like life in which God is desired and God is honored. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 3. It says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's the true knowledge, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. In other words, when you are receiving healthy doctrine from the word of God about the true knowledge of what God has done in Christ, it leads you to live a holy and a godly life. That's where it does. But if that's not being taught, it doesn't lead to that at all. In fact, look at the next passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We looked at verse 3. Look at verse 4. It says, if you don't have, if you advocate a different doctrine, it says in verse 4, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, verse number 5, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. There it is who suppose that godliness is a means of gains, but that he adds this, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. These false, the results of these false teachers is not contentment. It's strife. It's war. It's, it's, it's uh, all the fleshly stuff that comes out, calling themselves believers, you know, praising the Lord in their music, but in their lifestyle, there's nothing. False teaching will produce that. Peter is saying true teaching will produce holiness and godliness. So we, we, we must not forget that you are not lacking anything to grow in Christ-likeness. That you have everything you need for a life of godliness. And that the source of divine power is from Jesus and divine power is expressed in a godly life. Not a perfect life. I want to stress that. But a desire and a lifestyle in the direction of God-likeness. See, that's what a real Christian is. So what is the promise of being... There's a promise of being like Christ back in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. It says, For by these... By these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Now, what what is it meant by these? Well, I believe the antecedent is his glory and goodness or excellence. Then what makes, this really makes the best sense. And what it means is that Christ's attributes of divine majesty and moral goodness have been instrumental in giving believers not only what they need for a godly life, that through these attributes, Christ has provided for the fulfillment of these promises. Now, it is not clear what promises the Apostle Peter has in mind, but if we stick to the immediate context, it would include the fulfillment of those promises that believers become a sharer in the richest, the rich 
riches of the richest things of all treasures, and that's what? The nature and the life of God. The nature in the, in the life of God is what I can live out in my life, and also the remarkable privilege of enjoying intimacy with the God of this universe, which leads to an eternal kingdom, which leads to a new heaven and new earth, which we'll, we'll get to in his epistle. Right, so this promise of being like Christ leads to two benefits. One's a positive benefit. The other is a negative benefit. Look at the positive one in verse number four. It says, and the positive one is this, participation in the divine nature. It says, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, make no mistake, Scripture does not say that you have a divine nature. It says you participate in the divine nature. And to participate in the divine nature means the Christians share in God's own holy character. That's why Peter can say in 1 Peter, be holy, for I am holy. If God didn't say that, then we would say, well, I can't be holy because God didn't tell me I could be holy. But God says, I'm holy, you be holy like me. You be separated unto God like I am separated from evil. So you separate yourself from sin and evil like I do. You are given all the power to do that, to say no to sin. Before you could not, but now you can. So in other words, the Apostle Peter also does not say that we possess the divine nature in its totality, and therefore we are sinless. No, he does not say that. We must realize that we'll never be sinless. But I tell you what, as you grow in Christ, you will sin less. You will sin less. Why? Because the divine power has been given to me to be able to live out the communicable attributes of God that he has working in me to make me like himself. So God desires that his children look like his son, Jesus Christ. Participation in the divine nature is the reception of the ethical nature of, of really, of, of God, which then leads to holiness, then ultimately leads to immortality. So Christians are given an ethical desire to live for our Lord in holiness, purity, and goodness. Now that's the positive side. The negative side is found in verse number four also. And, and this is the negative side, and this is really the tension of the Christian life, that while we are participating in the divine nature, which is going to make us like Christ, concurrent with that is this. It says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We escape from corruption in the world caused by evil desire. Now, is there corruption in the world? You better believe there is, right? There is corruption in the world. And why do we have corruption? It says here, because of desire we have it. 
because of a, the sinful desire of the human heart that is depraved and self-centered. And remember, because of the fall of man into sin, sin came between man and God. God's own divine characteristics that were given to man in the beginning with Adam and Eve were lost. Sin shattered the image of God that was stamped upon man. So the part of man that had communion with God died. We died in the fall. So when the gospel comes to you, it's coming to someone who is dead. They cannot respond to God. So God has to do something. Right? He has to work on them. He has to bring the gospel to them. He has to open their eyes to see. He has to give them faith as a gift and repentance. He has to bring them to himself, draw them. The Father has to draw them to Christ. And when that happens, then God, what, quickens them, makes them alive, so then they do believe. And they become born again into the kingdom of God. But in the fall, we instantly died to God. We have no way to respond to God in a proper way because we're dead. So since that time, man has been running from God. And when they're running from God, they are governed by sinful desires that panders to their lower nature, to their sinful nature. So sinful desire is all around us. You know it well because you're a human being. I know well sinful desires. And I know when I have a sinful desire. I know when I have a sinful thought. You know when you have a sinful thought. Christians are very aware of those things because they have the Holy Spirit of God and they have the Word of God transforming their mind in their life. So they're very, very sensitive to their sinful desires. And they think in their mind, I don't want to have these desires anymore because I know where they lead to. Before they used to get me in trouble, but now I don't have to give in to them. Why? Because I have the divine, I'm participating in the divine nature of God. And God says, listen, this characteristic of mine, I'll give to you and I'm building into you so you can say no to that other characteristic that is evil. That's the sinful desire. So that means that sin, sinful desire is, as, is at the root of moral corruption in, in the world. And because of moral corruption, the world is subject to decay. It is dying. This whole world is decaying. It's got a curse upon it. We have a curse upon it. And so it's going to totter out, and God is going to replace it with a new heaven and new earth. So then, the escape is from corruption that still remains in this old world. Christians, as they grow in holiness, see clearly their need to separate themselves from the moral corruption that is so much a part of this fallen world. It becomes clear to us that is not the way to go anymore. That is not the decision to make anymore. I am a different person because of Christ, and I want to honor Christ in all my decisions and all my desires. So God restores us in salvation. 
He makes us spiritually alive. He recreates us after the image of the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is not merely putting a coat of paint on a collapsing house. He is making us new. That's what he is doing. And believe me, we ought to know this. This is important for you and I to know. So then a Christian's participation in the divine nature gives believers a new ability. What what is that ability? To resist sin through their union with Christ and his indwelling spirit in which the desire of the flesh is weakened and the old rebel voice inside of us becomes muted. I I don't hear him anymore. And their desire to obey the Holy Spirit and please Christ becomes the desire of their heart and holiness, the pattern of their lifestyle. See, that's what Peter wants to lay out before us before he gets into the details. He wants us to know these things. Why? So you're not lied to. So you don't hook on to some false teaching that tells you you can be perfect and tells you all kinds of other strange things that sound true but are not. So you can know that, listen, and examine yourself to to make sure that you're in the faith. In fact, he's going to talk about to make sure you're elect. You're one of the chosen. And how do you make sure of that? Because you are bearing fruit that the Spirit of God is producing in your life, and it is manifest outside of your body to yourself and to others. See, that's what you want. In other words, you want to be dragged into a court of law, and the court of law says, are you a Christian? Prove it. And you prove it. And you walk out of there proving it by what? Not your profession, but by your fruits. This is the person I used to be. This is not the person I am. Matter of fact, tomorrow I'm not going to be that person either because I'm growing in Christ-likeness every day. God's given me all the tools, all the power, all the instructions to make sure that happens. We have no excuse, brethren. We have no excuse. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning that these are the divine basis for a forward-moving godly life that is always growing. We know, Lord, where there is growth, there is life. And so, Lord, thank you. Embed these truths upon our minds. So, Lord, we do them. We just are not just hearers, but we are doers of the word. And, Lord, we know that doers of the word are blessed. You're near to them for blessing and strength. So increase our knowledge of you, Lord, the true knowledge of you, that we may display the characteristics of God in our life. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise, glory, and honor for all all that has and will be accomplished. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.